This is an ABC podcast. What is a xenobot? Xeno, spelled X-E-N-O, from the Greek, meaning stranger or host. They're being called living robots. They're very small. They're made from the cells of frogs. They're created with the help of artificial intelligence, and they could prove extremely useful for medical application in the future. Hello, Anthony Fennell here. Welcome to Future Tense. Xenobot. Still not familiar? Well, here's someone who can help. My name is Dr. Douglas Blackiston. I'm a senior scientist in the Allen Discovery Center at Tufts University and a visiting scholar in the Wyss Institute at Harvard University. And Dr. Blackiston is here to tell us how living robots are created, what they're designed to do, and whether or not we should be concerned about building them in the first place. He knows quite a lot about xenobots because, well, he's behind their creation. First of all, the word xenobot is a word that that really got picked up by the popular press and that a lot of people have latched onto in the public sphere. And it's a combination of two words. So xenopus labus is the frog species that we work with in the lab. That translates roughly to strange foot. It has a a claw on its feet. It's an ancient species of frog and bot from robot. And so when you look at these under just a dish in water, a xenobot just looks like a small speck, maybe about the size of a poppy seed or a little bit smaller. But if you look at it under the microscope, you can see a very small design structure that's been engineered by people in the lab, myself and my collaborators. And it's basically a micro biological robot. So it walks around, it swims, it can sense its environment. All of these are features that we program and shape through the types of experiments that we do in the lab. So a biological robot, How? what does that mean exactly? How much of it is machine? How much of it is a living organic organism? This is a, a great debate about technical definitions that's been playing out all over Twitter recently. And if you ask 20 different roboticists what's a robot, you'll get 20 different answers, much like if you ask 20 biologist, what's an organism, you get varying answers as well. So we don't really have operational definitions for these terms, but it's interesting that we've seen robotics moving from the synthetic world, so metal and structures into soft building materials and now into living materials. And really it doesn't matter what a robot is built from. It could be built from anything. The question is, how does it function? How do you program it? What does it do? How is it designed? The original term robot was used in a Czech play a hundred years ago, and it actually was based off of living organic matter, something we'd think of more like a cybernetic organism. But turns out that building with synthetic materials was much faster. Our biological innovations only came very recently with the advent of modern genetics, but we've sort of started to retake this term robot and push living materials back into it. And so you can think of a living robot as being composed of some degree of living biological material from a very small amount. We would call that a biohybrid. It's a hybrid of biological and inorganic components, all the way up to something like what we build in the lab that's entirely biological and living, but it's been designed. It's something that does not exist on Earth naturally. It's been created in the laboratory. And they're created from frog cells, as you said. But should we see these as a a new form of life? This is an excellent question. So I think there's two parts wrapped up in this. Number one is what is a life form? And so these don't meet the traditional biological characteristics for sure. So typically these can't reproduce through any type of reproduction we've seen on earth. 
There's no way for them to create offspring. So it's an imperfect life form. If anything, it's really a conglomeration of cells that's been placed together, much like a traditional robot is built. The other part that I think is really powerful about this is I do a lot of design in the lab. I sit down, I sculpt these tissues, but there's also an AI that we develop that's a simulator and it can connect different cell types in different combinations and test in a virtual environment, almost like Minecraft, what the behavior of the system will be. So it's really common in robotics to use a test bed that's simulated to look at predicted behaviors. And so the simulator has come up with a number of innovative designs that I never would have thought of in the lab and given us a bunch of new theories to test. And so in a way you can think that these are computer designed life forms. These are the first life forms that were not produced by natural selection or evolution. They were evolved by a virtual AI in the simulation then brought to life in the real world. So that introduces all sorts of philosophical and interesting ideas about to what degree do we want AI and computation to make decisions in the design of new organisms or in human health or any number of interesting topics. Let's go back a bit because you're now in the third generation of these xenobots, but could I get you to talk to us about, first of all, explain the capabilities and characteristics of the first two generations? The first generations that we built were really inspired by a lot of biohybrid designs, which use a plastic or or rubberized backbone, the traditional sort of scaffold for a robot, combined with heart muscle cells. So heart muscle cells are great because energetically they're very robust and they form strong contractions. And you can create these designs that are like inchworms that walk around. So our our innovation was to, to completely get rid of the synthetic components. We use skin cells as a backbone for our soft robots and use cardiac muscle or heart muscle, just like the original studies did. The advantages here are a couple fold. Number one, our designs are 100% biodegradable. So these live in water since they're made from frog cells. Anywhere that an amphibian lives, you can place these. And also at the end of their lifespan, there's no garbage left behind. There's no synthetic components. They break down harmlessly in water. And so those were able to walk almost like an inchworm through an aquatic environment and survive off of their internal energy stores without food for about 10 days. That was very good, but we found that that design space was limiting because there was only a certain amount of motion that we could generate from this type of control, and they were quite slow. So our generation two, we supplemented the muscle cells with a bunch of hair-like structures on the surface of the robot called cilium. And these are how microorganisms often move in pond water and so forth. So by beating these hairs synchronously, and we're learning to control this beating to try to get some sort of ability to drive these around very carefully. They can generate a gliding or swimming behavior. That's about 10 times faster than the walking. And so really, those are the two types of, of movements that we have so far, this walking and swimming through a liquid environment. And is all of that by computer and human design, or have these bots actually started to respond in their own way, to evolve? Right now, I would say... That's a tricky question, depending on who you ask. I'm quite conservative. So my view would certainly be on the airing on the side of, I can explain everything that I've built with my two hands based on the simulator and the way that we know that the cells behave. These cells, all cells certainly do sensing. There's a lot of self-organization. The types of cells that we use and how they develop has been well known. So this comes from traditional developmental biology work that's been going on for 50 or 100 years. But there is a lot of question about what could these be capable of? What type of sensing could they do? What types of behaviors might they have? What sorts of primitive processing might be possible in the system in the future? 
And the third generation of these xenobots, am I right in saying that the advance there relates to self-replication? That's right. So all the extant life forms that we see on our planet reproduce through some form of inheritance where a piece of them buds off or connects, where they produce some sort of material that goes on to produce the next generation. This is the basis of how genetics works. You provide genetic material to your offspring, and that is under the purview of natural selection. We came up with a different way. It's sort of a trick of the system where our system can't do that. Our cells are very similar to a skin biopsy or cells that might be taken from a patient for analysis. You're generally not worried about your skin biopsy dividing and getting out of control in the environment. So that's a lot like the types of things that we build. But all of our designs have been built from frog stem cells. And so we came up with a system where rather than reproduce or replicate through traditional means, we provide or seed the environment with loose stem cells. And through the types of designs that we build, we can engineer a system that is capable of collecting these loose stem cells from the environment and piling them together. And over the course of a couple of days, these piles adhere and differentiate into a second or third generation of biological robots. You can continue this process indefinitely. As you've said, there are some real philosophical and ethical questions coming out of all of this, aren't there? Philosophically, I think I'm always more interested as a biologist. The biology is is fairly well known to me as far as where the field is. I find this idea of AI and computer design incredibly fascinating, somewhat frightening, but mostly promising. And I think we see AI and artificial intelligence stepping into all aspects of our personal lives from advertising, the self-driving cars. And I think it's only recently that AI has begun to creep into biology and medicine. And we're just now starting to think about how comfortable are we offloading choices that we make as humans to an AI. And so, for example, this is designing and connecting cells to make a robot, but you could easily use the same sort of simulator to say, okay, design me a heart. And for me, myself, for Doug, if I need a heart transplant, there may actually be a different design than what nature has produced that's better for me based on my weight, based on my ethnic background, based on my lifespan. And the question is, will we feel comfortable allowing AIs to make those types of decisions or to design an organism or a biological robot? And then from the ethical standpoint, you always get into the questions of of safety and ethics of creating something that does not exist in nature. And so we as scientists have a, a pretty tremendously terrible track record about releasing things into the environment with unforeseen consequences. That's the, the basis of every invasive species that we see in different environments today. And so we're very cognizant of that. Everything we do is currently only in the laboratory, and it would require, at least in the U.S., both uh, state and federal oversight to even do any sort of testing in a local environment outside of the laboratory. So those people who you know might be concerned about this and, and where it could head, they're quite valid concerns as far as you're concerned. Absolutely. So I will say, number one, I think there should always be concerns and oversight and especially public transparency is tantamount to what we do and something that some scientists are nervous to do because engaging with the public can also lead to problems if you misspeak. On the flip side, I will say this technology is is incredibly benign and humans have been domesticating and altering self-replicating life forms forever in our history. So if you drink alcohol, Those yeast that have been used to produce your alcohol have been selected and bred and and are specific strains. If you've eaten bread and there's been yeast as well in there, there's been certainly vast amounts of selection. And every crop that we have and every domesticated animal has been under the purview of some sort of human alteration for thousands of years. Obviously, these can have unforeseen consequences 
if the designs are produced in a way that there's genetic manipulation. And I can also say that everything that I built in the lab, the genome is exactly the same as frog. These are frog cells doing what frog cells do. There's no genetic modification, which can in fact have unforeseen consequences, certainly down the line. And what sort of medical applications do you see for these micro robots? You know, I think there's sort of a acute sci-fi angle to building a robot. And I think there's a lot of reasons why you would want to build a very small robot out of cells. It's, it's difficult to build a metal robot on the scale of half of a millimeter in size that's self-powered. And so those are the fun examples. But I think practically where we'll see the most impact is on the medical front. So number one, there's already been efforts underway from our group and other groups to build these out of mammalian cell types or even human cells for a vast degree of, of human medicine. And second, we're learning really fundamental questions about how cells organize and how they move. And so the types of cilia that I use, the, the little hair-like structures that are on the surface, are the same cilia that are in our airways. And the defects that we see in our airways also impact the types of things that I build in the lab. And we've learned a lot about how these self-organize and how we can get them to move around and polarize. And it's actually given us some insight into a number of airway diseases that humans face currently. And so I think that these are just beginning to scratch the surface and the types of things that they can teach us about a number of human illnesses, as well as future therapies for human disease. And finally, where to from here, specifically with your research? <laughs> so there's things you can talk about and things you can't in science. Unfortunately, a lot of our work is under embargo until it's published. And that's a safety reason. You can trust we, us. We, <laughs> Absolutely. So it's 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 not about trusting the public. It's actually about trusting the science. We we pride ourselves in the fact that all of our work goes through an incredibly rigorous peer review through other scientists that are not associated work in the field to check for validity and holes. And so we want to make sure that the research is in as good of a shape as possible before it's put out to the public because it can impact policy, it can impact public perception. And so I could just say for my own research, the two things I'm working on currently are, are number one, adding a lot more ability to sort of sense and respond proactively to signals. And so most of the things that I built in the lab are very reactive. They're robots that walk or swim around and, and really they're responding to cues as opposed to searching for things in their environment, doing environmental testing. You know, I'd love them to be able to sense pollutants and somehow record that information inside of them. So when I retrieve them from the waterway, they can give me a biological readout of everything that they've sensed from heavy metals to radiation or anything else we might be concerned with. And then on the other side, we have a number of human-related disease, call them therapies that we're investigating with these from all sorts of things like being able to seek out a damaged spinal cord and, and release pro-regenerative compounds to being able to participate in other parts of regeneration in either mammals or in humans in the future. That's certainly a ways off. Clinical testing is, is challenging and time-consuming, but that's definitely something that's on our radar and the long-term goal of the research program. Well, Douglas Blackiston, it sounds like something we'll need to follow up on in future. So thank you very much for your time today. Thank you for having me. New ideas, new approaches, new technologies. That's Future Tense. A lot of the research we hear about young people and media is not actually research. It's marketing spin at best, full of stereotypes and condescension. So when some genuine new findings come along, it piques our interest. The Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism at Oxford University produces an annual digital news report. 
And this year, research fellow Dr Kirsten Eddy decided to dive into the results to try and get a clearer picture of how young people consume news and what consuming news even means in the time of TikTok. She breaks the young down into two categories, the familiar digital natives and what she's calling social natives. Kirsten Eddy. I think there are a few kind of key differences we see here, and and I think it's first important to just kind of break these down. So the groups that we establish here is first, as you said, those social natives. And we see this group as unique in that they are kind of 18 to 24s right now. They have grown up with a sort of social participatory web. They've grown up with social networks. And that's distinguishable from this group of digital natives, usually what we often refer to as kind of the millennial Gen Z breakdown. But we know that those generations are kind of tricky to narrow down. Digital natives, unlike social natives, grew up with the internet, but they might not have grown up with social networks. And we begin to see how some different attitudes and behaviors around news and the internet kind of evolve between these two groups. And I think the kind of key one that we see here is this question of brand attachment and use of social networks. We see that these groups are using different social networks and using them differently in different ways. And on top of that, we see a lot less brand connection. People are turning much more to social media rather than to brands directly, especially when it comes to news consumption. And is that true for both the social natives and the digital natives? It looks different between the two. I think we see it much more strongly, though it is present. I think if you compare kind of both of these groups to their older counterparts, you will see that both are kind of more brand agnostic than their older peers are. However, we still see that those social natives, the youngest group, is far less attuned to, interested in, or trustworthy of particular brands. They're often turning more towards search engines and social networks than that 25 to 34-year-old group of, of digital natives. And your research suggests that those social natives, they prefer visual platforms like TikTok and Instagram as opposed to, say, Facebook. Yes. When we look at things like Facebook, I mean, of course, this looks different. We're measuring 46 markets. So, you know, it looks different in many parts of the world. But I think when we look at sort of a global scale, what we largely see here is that this sort of 18 to 24 year old group, unlike the digital natives who come before them, are we say turning away from Facebook, but really what is possibly happening here is that they really never came on to Facebook in the first place. We see those numbers being far lower just in terms of general consumption or use of Facebook and in terms of their use of it for news specifically. Whereas their 25 to 34 year old peers, these digital natives, they're still on Facebook. They're still using it in ways that kind of align with some of the older groups that we see. And so that's where we begin to see one really big difference is that as Facebook kind of decreases even more so among social natives, they are turning more toward applications like Instagram, like TikTok, like YouTube, a lot of these kind of visually focused platforms. And given they're the youngest cohort and given they're the future, that trend is unlikely to turn backwards, is it? We don't think so. I think a lot of the kind of hand wringing over the future of of journalism has really focused on this idea over the past couple of decades that younger groups will eventually kind of change their behaviors to mirror their older peers. And I think what we begin to see here is that some of these changes in, in both behavior and attitude, how they think about the news are so fundamental that we really just don't see them turning to kind of align with what we have become accustomed to over time. Though there will be some changes over time, we do see you know, trust increasing, for instance, as people grow older, as people, you know, get families, their interests change in what type of news they're interested in. But I think some of the things that we see here, this turning away from brands, the use of social media, et cetera, we don't see changing drastically with time. 
when social natives talk about news, what do they mean by that? What's their understanding of, of what news entails? This one really interested me. We were really interested this year in finding out how people think about the news. And we ended up conducting qualitative interviews with people under the age of 30 in three countries, Brazil, the US and the UK. And one of the key findings we found here is that the youngest kind of group of under 30s have a much different perception and a much wider perception of what news is. Often when they were kind of chatting with us about how they perceived news, they had two sort of buckets that they lumped things into. The first was this kind of much wider encompassed umbrella of just news in general. And this could include anything from celebrity gossip to health and wellness to uh, sports information. And then they have the kind of deeper, much more narrow version, which is the news. And they perceive that specifically as kind of what we largely talk about news being politics and current events. And the news that has a turnoff factor, your report has found, doesn't it, for this cohort? It does. It does. It's not just for this cohort. I do think it's important to see that, you know, we do see that when people say that they avoid the news in general, we largely see that one of those reasons is that people are particularly turned off by topics like politics, coronavirus, etc. But we do see that these are even more clear among our youngest groups. So it is definitely clear to us that while younger groups do have this wider definition of news, they are more interested in a wide variety of topics. They look in many different areas for different forms of news and information. This area in particular, particularly politics, really kind of draws them away from it. And we see that's largely because of the negativity of it and the complexity of it. Do they still see the issues, though, that are covered by, you know, the news, traditional news, do they still see those as important, even though they find it negative and hard to deal with or or not interesting? This is a great question. I think that there's kind of a mix here. I, I think that largely people in these age groups do still find this information to be important. I think one great example was when we originally produced this survey. We did it in January and February of 2022. So it was shortly before the war on Ukraine. And we decided to actually conduct a follow-up survey in five countries because we were interested in seeing kind of how those news habits and attitudes changed when such a major global event occurred. And I think one of the things that was really important here was that we actually saw many people, younger people in particular, turning toward, for instance, traditional media like television news or radio news. We saw people returning to brands that they don't normally consume and paying more attention to news. And so I think that's one great example of the fact that when an event is a sort of need to know event, when they feel like things are directly affecting them, when they see you know, major events going on, they do see it as important and they do return to it. It may not last in the ways that we hope that it will or want it to, but it definitely is there. There's still that draw toward these major events as they occur. When we were looking at news avoidance in particular, one of the things that we saw as clearest between the sort of younger cohorts versus the older cohorts is that our younger groups are far more likely to say that they avoid the news because they find it too hard to understand. One single strand that we can focus on here is that when we see things like explainers, like Q&As, formats that allow people to understand these really complex, difficult or even you know, depressing topics in ways that help them kind of process it better, it may draw in a small segment of these news avoiders who simply just don't feel like they have the understanding of what's going on. A cornerstone of journalism traditionally is the idea of impartiality and things being fact-based, you know, not opinion or supporting a cause, you know, a form of activism. 
Are those values, are they still as important to young people as they perhaps were to older generations? This is such an important question, I think, for how journalism is practiced in, in many countries. And we continue to see it as we kind of debate what the role of journalism is moving forward and how journalists should write or speak, whether opinions are important in it. And I think there's sort of a mix here. We largely see in our work on impartiality in our 2021 digital news report that despite uh, a lot of the conversation around sort of preferences toward moving away from maybe objectivity or impartiality, people still largely do prefer it. Less so among younger groups, but still not so drastically. A majority still prefer, you know, impartial, objective news. But on the other hand, you know, in, in our qualitative interviews this year, we really did see this sort of overriding sense of skepticism coming from young people. I think they were raised in an era of digital literacy and media literacy, and they were taught to be skeptical of all of the information that they're consuming. And I think that they really seem to approach all information now with that same level of skepticism. They felt that news organizations, like many other institutions, had a sort of agenda. And so I think some of these young people, when they perceive or when they view news that has kind of impartial or objective tones, they actually perceive it as kind of covering up that agenda that they see is kind of written deep in there. So I do think that there is a mix. I don't think that there's one universal kind of perspective from young people on this sort of question. But I do think that we see these patterns of, of kind of questioning whether objectivity is truly objective or whether it's just covering up, you know, the perspective of the reporter or journalist who they're listening to at that time. There is a perspective on young people that says that they're much more interested in activism. And I, I guess, you know, Greta Thunberg is probably a, a good example of that. Did you find that in your research? And if so, how does that play out in terms of that idea of, again, impartiality and not being biased? There's a couple things that we found here that kind of tie into this. I mean, we did some work this year on questions surrounding climate change and news coverage of climate change. And we do see, for instance, that younger audiences are more likely than older audiences to say that they follow, you know, activists and celebrities around this topic in particular. So I think that there are these kinds of pieces that are very clear that younger people are more exposed to and possibly more interested in activists in these various realms over maybe some of the kind of tried and true classic mainstream brands or even, you know, politicians or scientists, for instance. So I think that there is a kind of draw there. I, I imagine that it's probably just a likely side effect of the fact that most of these people are spending their lives on social media. And we happen to be a part of a world in which activists of many sorts of causes really kind of focus on social media as a key kind of centerpiece of their efforts. So I, I think that they're probably very exposed to it in ways that maybe older groups are not. But I also think that there's definitely a draw here for very kind of opinionated, very passionate calls for attention toward these sorts of causes that, that often young people are particularly interested in, climate change, things like social justice, et cetera. So in summary, what does all this mean for news outlets, for news brands? I think that there's kind of several routes or ideas to take here. I don't think that there is a sort of one size fits all solution to engaging or attracting young people. And I think that's maybe the first and most important thing for news brands going forward is to remember that, you know, just simply creating a TikTok account, for instance, isn't going to just bring young people in. But I think that there's kinds of new sets of challenges and opportunities for organizations with kind of some of our findings in mind. I think that we can see that it will be important if news organizations want to draw younger audiences in to 
connect with the topics that they're caring about. And I think what we see here is that this is a very diverse range of topics. It's not just, you know, the two or three kind of key ones of climate change, for instance. So that is one of them. People are drawn to a very diverse range and, and they will look for that information wherever they can find it. I think the other thing is focusing on really developing multimedia and platform specific content and then really aligning their content with whatever formats they're using. So whether they are going on to platforms like Instagram and TikTok to reach young people, making sure that the content isn't just, you know, what they're copying and pasting over from their news websites, that it's really fitting what young people are drawn to about these applications. And so I think that there's there's a lot here. I think largely people look at some of these findings as negative or difficult. I do think what it means is that there is a large space of opportunity to bring young people into the fold. They will constantly be looking for new spaces of information. And so there are ways in which news organizations can work to engage them where and sort of meet them where they are. Dr. Kirsten Eddy from the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism at Oxford University. And you've been listening to Future Tense. The producer was Karen Savanovitz. I'm Anthony Fennell. Until next time, cheers. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.